Lord, I pray in behalf of this congregation and my own heart that what we have sung would be true, that we would find it well with our soul through Christ. And I pray that you would allow us to journey forward in the Christian walk, that we would be faithful to your call upon our lives as a congregation, as individual Christians. I pray in behalf of those who have not yet come to the light of the gospel. I pray that you would open their eyes to see the glories of Christ and the satisfaction of soul that can be ours in Him. Lord, I pray that you would work in and through us and in this time together we give it to you, we dedicate it to your glory and honor and pray that you would allow your church to feed upon your truth and to grow in Christ in whose name we pray, amen. Distraction can be a deadly killer. Becoming distracted by a small matter can steal one's focus away from far greater matters such as staying alive. There's a Taft Point towers 3,500 feet above the valley in California's Yosemite National Park. There was a married couple recently that attempted to take a selfie at the cliff's edge of Taft Point. But their focus on getting a nearly meaningless picture distracted them from the far more important task of staying alive, and they plummeted to their deaths. Their tripod stood at the cliff's edge, marking the spot of their departure from this world. If they had it to do over, they'd skip the selfie. Recently, a local driver was texting and driving. She ran a red light and killed another driver. The harsh consequences for this woman will follow her the rest of her life. If she had it to do over, she'd ignore the text. These are serious accounts, and we can pile many others on top of them. Distraction can also kill Not only physically, but in a metaphorical way. A married man of five becomes so fixated upon his job that he loses his relationship and all respect with his five children and with his wife. He drifts away from that relationship. Distraction takes it away and kills it. Distraction can prove deadly to relationships. And Christian the most deadly distraction that we may ever face is the temptation to drift away from the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. To become so distracted with something else that we lose Him. Picture it this way. We have three friends in a fishing boat on a river And they know that there's a deadly waterfalls not too far down the river. If they pay careful attention to their location, they can maintain that location and they can fish all day without any problems. But if they allow their boat to begin to drift too far, they'll come with these strong currents to be pulled over that falls. Keep that picture in your mind. They can drift away to a point of no return and they can be taken over the falls. 
to their death. In like manner, we must pay careful attention to orient our lives to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, refusing to drift away from our faith. It takes active faith, it takes concentration in this world to continue to persevere in our walk with Christ. This strong warning is the implication of the glorious exaltation of Jesus that we find in Hebrews chapter 1. As we come now today to chapter 2, let me remind you of the background we gave last week concerning the uh, Hebrews, their deep reverence for angels. I don't think they were in any temptation of worshiping angels. Some would argue that. But this deep reverence for angels, this attraction to angels, was tempting to, uh, it was, the temptation was to drift away from Christ. And so the author is addressing that issue behind this text as well as the complication of Christ's incarnation. The Hebrews knew very well that angels are superior beings to man for now. And so Jesus Christ in the flesh was perhaps compromising some of their perception of the gospel. Then thirdly, the early church's typological reading of the Old Testament. That pertains specifically to what we looked at last week and how they read the Scriptures to see the fulfillment in Christ. And so these texts that we read in chapter 1, as you just peruse that with your eye, these are their John 3.16s. I mean, this was their Bible. They knew these texts were about Christ, the fulfillment of the prophetic word. And then the author's contextual game plan. And that is to bring this string of texts that exalt Christ one after another in chapter 1 to bring it to this point in the context of their being so enamored with angels and in the danger of drifting away from the faith. That's where he's heading in all of this. To which of the angels has the Lord ever said these things? So notice verse 5 of chapter 1. Verse 5 of chapter 1, For to which of the angels did God ever say? And then in verse 13 of chapter 1, To which of the angels has he ever said? So that grouping there together... Has God ever said these things to angels? No, but he says this to the Son. The Son is superior in eternal ways, in ways beyond comprehension to the angelic realm with which they were very enamored. So as chapter 1 unfolds, angels are superior creatures to man, but not to Christ. Jesus was a man made a, for a time lower than the angels in that sense. But the Hebrews needed to remember that Jesus was not only man, but that he was the one true and living God. And that is made very clear in chapter 1. For Jesus is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the sovereign heir of the universe, of all that is. Jesus is the firstborn of the universe in the sense that he is the ascendant Lord of heaven who reigns over all. Firstborn in that sense of the word. Jesus is the Son of God, not in the sense that he is created by God or fathered by God as we use the term, but in the Hebraic sense that the Son does everything the Father does with equal authority. All the fullness of the divine dwells in him in bodily form. 
So Jesus, as the one-of-a-kind Son, is Himself God, verse 8, although distinct in the single triune being from the Father, verse 9. He is addressed as God, and there's reference then to His God, both being true, both held in tension together. The one-of-a-kind Son, as God, verse 8, distinct in the single triune being from the Father, verse 9. So the chapter ends then by asserting that Jesus is seated on the throne of the universe. You see that in verse 13. Uh, To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is said only of the Son. This question then, verses 5, ending there, collecting there at verse 13 is what the author brings before the Hebrews to arrest their attention that they not drift away from Christ crucified and risen. Again, they were not worshiping angels, but they were enamored by them. So the author paints an exalted picture of the risen, reigning Christ and then comes to the first warning passage of the book of Hebrews. We find here then in chapter 2, in verse 1, first of all, the imperative. Pay close attention to Jesus. That's the obvious implication of what he has said. Verse 1, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What had they heard? They had heard the message of Christ crucified and risen. They had responded to that message unto salvation and it was important that they not drift away from it to pay closer attention is a word often used of bringing a ship shapes a ship safely to shore tongue twister right there didn't count on to bring a ship safely to shore this word was often used to pay close careful attention so picture there's a captain with this great ship And you see on his face the concentration and no distraction. Not now. Nothing else matters but bringing the ship to port. March 1989, an overworked, exhausted third mate at the helm of the tanker Exxon Valdez in the middle of the night. He failed to navigate the tricky passage through Prince William Sound in Alaska. He ran the ship aground on a reef. The hull of the vessel was pierced in several places and 11 million gallons of oil was spilled into the sound. That's the opposite of this word. Pay careful attention. Give all due attention. This is utterly important. This is the imagery that the author is using here. To take focused attention, bringing a ship to dock or through tricky waters or effectively to anchor that ship is a parallel to how we are to concentrate on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The message that's been delivered to us in the New Testament text. Our attention, you notice here in verse 1, is to be riveted on what? It's to be riveted on what we have heard, as he puts it here. That's the transformational good news about Jesus. So follower of Christ, let's say it this way, let's break it down. 
It is our moral responsibility and our eternal privilege to keep our eyes fixed on the death of Jesus. He is the Lamb of God, a sacrificial substitute. Jesus took on flesh in order to pay the judgment against our sin to genuinely die. That fact is at the heart of who we are and how we are to see our world. And secondly, follower of Christ, it is our moral responsibility and our eternal privilege to focus on the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus was the confirmation that the Father accepted the Son's payment for sins. The resurrection is the victory over death which is now given to us as an eternal gift, eternal life in union with Christ. The wages of sin is death, the Scriptures teach us. The gift of God is eternal life through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believer, keep your focus there. Do not drift away from it. Allow nothing to distract you from that truth, that central truth. Or said negatively here in verse 1, we must pay careful attention to what we've heard lest we drift away. Notice the we. He is addressing believers, or at least those who see themselves as believers. Do not drift away. This is the danger. C.S. Lewis observed that few Christians who walk away from the faith in Christ do so because someone argues them out of it. That they are talking to them about the teaching of Christianity and they convince them that these things are not true. The vast majority of Christians, as he observed, and I think it's very true, simply drift away. Like the three friends in the fishing boat... They get caught up with lesser things and the boat gets to that place where the river pulls it over the edge. That's the warning here. And Christian, it would just be foolish for us not to ask ourselves now in this moment, am I drifting? Are you drifting? Are you beginning to focus on trendy ways to help you cope with life? that are not centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you becoming enamored with political activism or consumed with theological or societal debates that do nothing to encourage your joyful satisfaction in the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you so caught up with the cares and sorrows of life that you're losing your focus on Jesus crucified and risen? The crucified, risen, returning Christ reigns supreme on heaven's throne. And it is our, He is our all-sufficient Lord and Savior. That is where our focus is to be. Now there's a lot of nuancing, that, qualification that we need to add here, rightly so. There are many things that do take our attention and in a, a proper way. But we must also ask ourselves a question, what is at the very hub of my focus? What is the center, the controlling orientation to my life? Is it this message of the reigning Christ, crucified and risen? Or is it a thousand other things, even good things in and of themselves? 
This is all a very serious matter, and the author moves next to defend his exhortation with a very severe warning. Drifting from Jesus will end badly. He says in verses 2 through the first half of verse 3, notice it here, verse 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? For since the message, let's take it apart, a little piece by piece here. Notice verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. The message he's talking about here is the giving of the Mosaic law on Mount Sinai. By angels, he means there, it could be translated, it might be more helpful to translate it through angels, but he means by the mediating work of angels. So the Mosaic law given to Israel on Mount Sinai, was mediated through angels. God is the author of the message of truth to Israel, and God commissioned angels to convey, to be involved with the giving of the law. Now that's a side doctrine, isn't it? Did you think of that recently? That angels were involved in the giving of the law. But we find it is the case here, but also Stephen mentions this in his speech in Acts chapter 7. He says the law, he speaks of the law as delivered by angels. Paul in Galatians 3 and verse 19 speaks of the law put in place through angels. And this law, we notice here, was reliable. So the Hebrews would have probably thought about this a lot more than we do. That the, there was angelic involvement in the giving of the law, and it was reliable, a reliable word from God. That is, the law God issued on Mount Sinai to Moses was good, and it was trustworthy. Second phrase, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So God gives the law to Israel, and there are consequences for violating that law. When Israel violated God's good law, they were punished for it. God is just, God is righteous, and He holds His people accountable to obey His true word. If this is true of the Old Covenant then, verse 3, this is true of the situation in that context, Exodus 19, 20 and following. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the comparison is with the law given to Israel and now under the new covenant, this message that has been delivered through the person of Christ. Hebrews knew their Bibles well. It's very clear this is the case and they would have thought immediately, yes, God punished Israel for violating the law. And case after case would have arisen in their minds as it certainly can in ours as we know the Old Testament, the golden calf debacle. Israel's complaining and whining against God in the desert and the judgment that came, the refusal to enter the promised land, the opposition against Moses and Aaron and the like. They, they, they would have said, yes, under the law, God is just and he held his people accountable. There was punishment for their sin. Now the author's saying this, working from lesser to greater. Here's the point. 
If that happened under the old covenant, imagine what trouble will come if we neglect the message of salvation won for us by the eternal Son of God. What danger there is in drifting away from the faith. The old covenant was not evil, it was not false, it was not unreliable. But the new covenant inaugurated by Christ fulfills and deepens and builds upon the Mosaic covenant. If they were punished for neglecting God under that covenant, what will happen to us if we drift away under the economy that Jesus oversees in his saving grace in the finalization of all that prophecy had indicated. The new covenant inaugurated by Christ fulfills, it deepens, and it builds on this Mosaic covenant. Do not go back there. Do not drift away to a side issue, a distraction of concentration on angels. Study them. They're real. Know about them. But do not allow that focus to draw you away, is what he's saying to these original readers. What does it say to us? Follower of Christ, we stand, we see it here very clearly, we stand in a very privileged place in salvation history. We stand in a place where there are no more animal sacrifices that are necessary. You know, there are people in this world that continue to offer animal sacrifices. In their religious pursuit of the gods as they know them, they still sacrifice animals. There's a whole slew of more people that don't offer animal sacrifices whose people and religions once used to. And they don't know why they stopped. Which is not very convenient, I suppose. Not a whole lot of fun. But they just don't do it. Why, Christian, do we not offer sacrifices to God because we know the Lord Jesus Christ is the final sacrifice. We know that the sacrificial system has been completed in Him. We have, secondly, the indwelling Holy Spirit, regeneration that brings conviction of sin, that brings by God's grace, slowly over time, progressively, power over sin. And we have peace in the place where there once was anger and hostility and sensuality that ruled our lives. Slowly but surely, pulling away from these powers, we have the indwelling Spirit so that the law is not written merely in stone, but on a soft and tender heart toward God. This is our privilege on this side of the cross. But with this higher privilege comes then a higher responsibility not to neglect what Christ has done. How foolish to pull back to the law. How foolish to get oriented to angels and for us to get oriented to a lot of other things. We'll discuss that here in a moment. But the command then is do not drift away from the gospel by becoming spiritually distracted by lesser interests. The warning that backs up that command there is a great danger in drifting away from and neglecting the great salvation that is in Jesus Christ. 
But I think it, it finishes it out so well here by looking at the grounding of all of this. What is the solid ground under our feet as we heed this warning? Is the author right to make such claims to his readers? Our grounding is the salvation in Jesus, which is absolutely certain. And that certainty is teased out here at the end of verse 3 and into into verse 4. This salvation, this great salvation, verse 3, was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. It was, that is the message of salvation in Christ, was declared at first by the Lord. Notice that word by. You see it there in verse 3. By the Lord. Connect that up to verse 2. By angels. It's the same Greek phrase and again could be translated through. So through the mediating work of angels, the old covenant was conveyed. Through the mediating work of Jesus, the gospel is conveyed. The good news of his crucifixion, resurrection for the salvation of his people. So the kingdom of God was prophesied certainly for centuries. But it was Jesus who came announcing that the kingdom is at hand. Jesus preached and embodied the word of God to his people. And that word that Jesus proclaimed and embodied in flesh, it was attested by those who heard. Who's he talking about? Here is, I think, specifically the apostles. Could have included others, but certainly at the center of it was the apostles who heard the message of Jesus and conveyed it on. Notice here that the author includes himself in that. I think that's important here. Declared, verse 3, declared first at first by the Lord and attested to us by those who heard. Just look at Galatians 1. And you'll see that's not how Paul ever spoke of himself. I think this is one of the strongest texts that indicate this was not written by the Apostle Paul. But rather by one who heard the message himself from the Apostles as the Hebrew believers had heard it. But not only did the Apostles of Christ bear witness to his teaching in the New Testament, But we find here in verse 4 that God also bore witness by signs, wonders, various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. That is, God Himself validated the authenticity of the Apostles' message about salvation. God bore witness to the truth of that message by granting to the early church various spiritual powers and signs. God poured out signs, wonders, and miracles upon the church to signal that the message of the apostles, what they were preaching, was authentic. Just like the miracles of Jesus, those miracles were real. They were undeniable, even by unbelievers they didn't need 
a second dose. The person was healed for good, permanently. They were miracles people could clearly see with their own eyes. They didn't need to get their faith all in order to convince themselves that this had happened. They could see it with their own eyes. And these miracles were not duplicated. They could not be duplicated. Only the work of the Holy Spirit could do this. And He did. We do not deny the miracles that we find in the New Testament texts or anywhere in the Bible. The Spirit whom Jesus poured out upon His followers after He ascended to heaven, baptizing them with the Holy Spirit, these individuals received, on some level, in varying degrees, according to the will of God, spiritual powers to say, this is all of God. And it's on that that we stand today. So these gifts included the ability to speak in tongues, which I understand to be to speak revealed truths from God in a language that one has never studied and perhaps ever even heard. They were given the capacity to heal the sick. Again, not temporarily or partially, but completely, fully, immediately. They were given the power to prophesy God's will, to speak for God authentically to give divine revelation. Miracles save no one. None of the miracles of the New Testament church saved anybody unless to point them to the miracle of regeneration in Christ. But these miracles did attest to God's approval of what Jesus preached and the record of that teaching that we have in the New Testament. Reminds us of the Apostle Peter. Remember his words? We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what we're up to here. We saw his glory. We speak his word. And these miraculous powers from above indicate that this is a message from above, not from below. Christian, the truth that we can take from this today, our faith does not rest in fanciful tales. It is rooted in the words of the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ. It is encoded in the God-breathed pages and text of the New Testament. And that message was authenticated by miracles performed by the early church. It's in this heritage that we stand. It's on this ground that we trust that gospel. So the author warns us, distraction can kill. If our three friends in the fishing boat do not pay careful attention they can drift to the point where the river sucks them over the falls and dashes them to death on the rocks. I spoke of this couple that went over the edge of this cliff. It's a, it's a horrifying story. Not nearly as horrifying as what will be if you drift away from the faith. That's true horror. And, and this writer stands before us and says, don't drift, Christian. 
Don't slip away. Don't lose sight and leave Christ. The danger of drifting away from Jesus is far more serious than any physical death that we could suffer. Drifting for the Hebrews was fixation in part upon angels. It was a desire to identify perhaps with old covenant followers that would allow them to avoid some persecution and the like. We'll get into that more, Lord willing, in the future. But this distraction placed them in danger of drifting away from the faith. Their focus was being drawn away from Christ crucified and risen. And neglect of, that neglect of Christ led to the neglect of the assembly. Chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Which further siphoned off their faith. It began to leak away from them as they distanced themselves from the proclamation of that gospel in assembly. We're really not, it doesn't seem to me, in grave danger of becoming fixated on angels. Go back about 20 years and that might have been the case. Those of you old enough to remember that, the old touched by an angel thing and all that, that crazy time. Uh, utterly sentimental in its orientation, but I don't really see a whole lot of that going on or a whole lot of temptation there. But in our societal setting, which is distinct, we're more tempted with things such as this. The danger to construct our own personal journey of self-understanding, self-improvement, and self-advancement. That is a place where Christians in our context are drifting away. We get so involved in coping so enamored with the latest trendy book or seminar, we get so caught up in self-fulfillment that we can drift away from Christ in the process. And there's a lot of verses put into this and a lot of emphasis on Jesus in name. But I think the church of Jesus Christ in this land right now needs to be carefully warned about the psychologized view of man and the Christian life. We are really drifting away from Christ crucified and risen as sufficient for our Christian lives. And I think the author of Hebrews, he wouldn't talk to us probably about our being enamored with angels, but he would say, watch that. Watch that. Citing the work of Middleton and Walsh, commentator George Guthrie notes that the unique temptation of our time is to seek autonomous personal advancement. That's what we're all about. Don't tell me what to do. I'll, I'll do it myself. I'll do it my way. And I need to improve and become important or whatever it is. Often that includes image reshaping from changing our physical appearance to how we relate to others, every aspect to reimagine who I am. This is our fixation. And they bring out the idea that, in an almost bizarre way, this is also connected then to the idea of securing our status as a victim. We are falling in love with being victims. And anymore, it's almost a claim 
to legitimacy to say, here's how I've suffered, here's how I'm a victim of others, here's how I'm a victim of the system or these persons or whatever. This rather bizarre combination of focused self-advancement with finding my worth in victimhood puts Americans in a state of self-contradiction. I want it all, on the one hand, and I'm paralyzed in the face of it all, on the other. These authors point out that this orientation tempts us then to drift from an orientation of who is God and what do I owe Him in communion with His blood-bought church. That's set aside. Who is God and who am I in communion with His blood-bought church? And it is replaced with what can God in the local church do to help me cope as a victim of the wrongs that others have committed against me and the cruel world that hinders my self-actualization. My becoming everything that I can be as I want to be. The suffering's real. I don't mean to minimize it. The challenges are many. But the critical question American Christians are so tempted to ask these days is what can God and His local church do to help me find this self-fulfillment of becoming all that I can be on my terms. Don't drift away. And then when that ceases to happen within the context of a church, when my autonomy is threatened by some relationship in covenant with God's people, I drift away from them and I drift away from Christ. This is our challenge. And I don't mean to speak of everything that could be said, but it's this type of way that I think we need to apply what we see here. So a few encouragements along the way. Where do we go with it? What do we do with it? Not thought out as well as I'd like it to be, and I, I hope that we can talk about it this week as a church, and you can talk about it as families and individuals with one another. How do we work it out? But one thing I think that's certainly necessary to not drift away, to not neglect this great salvation, is to revel in prayer every day in the gospel. Can you answer this right now in your own heart? Is there a time in your day when you seek God in prayer to thank Him for Christ's death and resurrection? To think it out. To review it every day. Here's what Christ has done for me. Here's my identity. Suffering, yes, but I see it not in how I'm going to go about it, and who, can see, who I can get to see me as a victim, but rather to know that Jesus died in my place. That He knows what suffering is. That He is a great high priest who intercedes as one who suffered more than I'll ever understand. Every day, give yourself in prayer for some moment or some season to thank God to think through in prayer his death and resurrection. Secondly, I would encourage us, choose to saturate yourself in the revelation of Scripture, not in the stagnant pop psychology backwaters or in the dead-end social and political re-engineering schemes so prevalent in our day. 
tapping into those things where you need, where it must be, I leave some room according to wisdom. But do not drift away from the Scriptures. Saturate yourself in the revelation of truth. It's a discipline. It takes hard work. We have to stay with it. But where you find that some book, some speaker, some source, is just, you just drink it down like candy. The reason is, is because it's candy. There's nothing solid there for your soul. This book is our foundation. This is what feeds our soul. This is what tells us the truth of God so that we can sing, it is well with my soul, and mean it. Thirdly, very connected, but read the Bible in your personal life, your family life, and with other believers. Yes, there's a battle there for us to turn it into tradition, for it to allow it to become cold and ritualistic. Just stick with it. Keep reading the Scriptures. Continue to saturate your mind there. Don't go at it looking for what you want to make out of it. But hear the voice of God every day in your life. Collected with God's people, give yourself to hearing the Scriptures. Number four, attend church as one oriented to build others up in the faith and to be built up. This warning is for us as a congregation to help one another not be sucked down the river and over the falls by some recent trend, some new idea, some different way of looking at it, something that feeds my desires for autonomous self-actualization and to be seen as a victim again, for instance but rather to help one another endure in the faith, persevere each day in Christ. Christian, ask yourself honestly this morning, am I drifting away? Am I growing in my battle against sin and in my affections for Jesus? Is the truth of His death to pay the penalty of my sin and His resurrection life growing increasingly relevant to everything that I do and everything that I believe? Is it the filter through which I read my world and interpret my own suffering, my own difficulties, who I am? Is it my identity, union with the Lord Jesus Christ? And let us help then one another stay focused on Christ. We work together as a congregation not to drift away, not to neglect, but to pay close attention to Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sin, risen in victory over death and judgment, reigning from heaven's throne sovereignly and coming again to receive his people. Let us help one another and pray for one another that we not drift away. Let's pray. And Lord, I do pray that prayer for this congregation, for my own heart. There's a sense of assurance that we have in your saving grace, and we revel in it. We're also reminded here that we are not to take that grace for granted. But that it is in us 
in our own strength. It's in us to drift away and to neglect this great salvation in Christ. Help us to consider ways in which perhaps we're doing that. I pray in behalf of your people that you will draw us close, draw us near. Keep us focused on what is really central on the big picture. Keep us from drifting away. Lord, the temptation's there for everyone. But I pray like those three friends in the boat, that we'd keep paddling forward, that we'd keep our eye fixed on Christ ahead, that we would not lose ground and drift away. For those who know not Christ as Savior, we ask that you do a work that you alone can do and open their eyes to this central message. If they do not know you as Savior, then Christ crucified and risen is not at the center of their identity, is not the, the navigator, the helm of their life. But I pray that you'd bring that peace of soul that comes when one turns from sin and trusts in Jesus crucified and risen for saving grace. Do that work among us, we pray, and may we stay on. May we not drift away, but may we continue to exalt in this great salvation. Through Christ we pray.